What's up, everyone, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this is part two of our Climate Palooza episode. Last week, we took you through three carbon reduction plans made by some of the most pollutive sectors in our economies, and this week, we are going to examine two sectors that aren't that directly pollutive, but control enough of the economy to be considered on the same plane as the oil and gas majors, for example, when it comes to indirect emissions. So thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. We are all more or less interconnected by certain industries, whether we'd like it or not. The movements that their constituents make shape our world, and their ambition in cutting carbon sets our current epoch either for failure or hopefully success, which means we must understand what they plan to do in this regard and why. Last week, we spoke about the carbon reduction plans of companies in three of these sectors, energy, utilities, and materials. Their plans focused on changing relatively visible polluted practices, fossil fuel procurement and distribution, burnt coal and oil to generate electricity, and the carbon emissions from the making of essential materials like cement. This week, we focus on two industries that carry much of the way our society is changing and how it gets the funds to change banking and technology. And I think it's best to start with banking today, an ancient industry that holds the strings for how and what prospers. My colleague Nigel Fletcher, alongside another of my colleagues, Jakub Malish, recently authored a report on one of the most difficult to assess facets in the banking industry, the environmental risks in banks' loan books. A bank's loan book is basically the main artery of its emissions. So to continue with our Climate Palooza episode, where we provide you with a roadmap of how to think about carbon reduction plans, I called up Nigel and asked him to first take me through the carbon emissions of the banking industry as a setup to discuss the environmental complexity of a bank's loan book. Similar to other sectors, banks will have their scope one and scope two emissions um, from their operations. But then in terms of kind of the indirect emissions, if you're looking at the scope three emissions, um, they will have the most important category for them is category 15, which is the so-called financed admissions. And this will make up the large majority of the bank's total admissions. So they're sort of important um, to understand. And I think at this stage, um, I guess we know that it's kind of difficult for banks to be able to calculate those financed admissions. So to date, most banks, they still do not report financed admissions. So several have committed to do so. And some have taken initial steps to disclose financed admissions. Um, but yeah, but to date, like the, the number of banks disclosing finance emissions is kind of small. So this brings us right back to a common theme that we had last week, the lack of disclosure for many companies on the important types of scope three emissions. I looked at the major banks out there and the only ones that report their scope three emissions, any scope three emissions, not just category 15, are BMO and the infamous Deutsche Bank. That's it. That bank you're thinking of in your mind, nothing. They're reporting nothing on Scope 3. And no bank that I know of provides the entirety of their loan and equity portfolio Scope 3 emissions, those Category 15 emissions that Nigel just talked about. And that represents about 70% of their total emissions. Now, it should be said that there is no guidance on the best way to do that. So to report on your Category 15 Scope 3 emissions as a bank is a significant task. But there are banks coming out with net zero 2050 targets that include a target for reducing category 15 emissions. So 
let's get into hypothetical mode right now. What would the banks have to do in order to make those targets more than just big talking? I guess I guess the starting point would be to say like what we see. So in terms of what we see, we see banks maybe setting targets for specific portfolios. Like they may be saying we want to um, reduce the absolute financed emissions from I don't know our shipping portfolio or our transport portfolio by X percent by by this year. Or they may be doing targets that are sort of intensity-based targets. So they'll say, uh, I don't know, whatever the economic output is for that sector that they're lending to, they'll say that they want to sort of reduce that by, I don't know, 20 or 30% or something like that. And that would be kind of the target that they had for then that part of the portfolio. But I guess in terms of sort of the end game, the end game, I guess, would be um, that the banks would be reporting uh, the financed emissions for their for their whole portfolio, including their equity investments, and having a target um, to reduce that. Okay, so what part of their portfolio would banks likely reduce if they started to look at their scope three emissions? Well, Nigel and his co-author, Jakub, looked at what the makeup of the bank loans are by region and sector at the moment. And they saw that for all the regions out there, an average of about 25% of bank loans, a quarter of bank loans, are to industries that have a high exposure to issues related to climate change, natural capital, pollution, and waste. And these are, as you would expect, the energy, utilities, and material companies, the ones we talked about last week. The remaining 75% are in less risky industries. 10% of that gets the medium category, but the rest are on the greener side of risk. So does this mean that if banks wanted to aggressively lower their emissions from category 15, that they would just have to cut their loans to these highly pollutive industries? I guess that they kind of have to work with their customers to understand how their customers are sort of their customers pathway in terms of transitioning to a lower carbon economy. Um, and that's, yeah, and that's kind of, yeah, what the banks need to, to understand in order to kind of manage their own risk. So it's not a case of saying, like, we'll stop lending. I mean, there's obviously, in terms of banks have put out statements in terms of, I don't know, let's say, like, the Arctic sands where they've stopped lending or they've reduced, going to reduce exposure to, like, coal-powered um, plants and things like that. So there, there is instances like that. But I don't think generally, but then it's also a case of working, I guess, with the corporates to understand what their pathway in terms of the transition is to the low carbon economy. So it sounds like Nigel kind of loses steam there, but it's a useful point. Banks have a lot of power when it comes to dictating the terms of the loans that they provide businesses and people. It's prevailing thought one that is currently being pushed by stakeholders and regulators, I promise you this, is that there are industries that are going to be more at risk due to a low-carbon transition than banks might find themselves requiring a more granular data set on what sort of carbon risks certain loans might entail. Or they may take a more business-friendly tact and offer more financing to projects that are considered quote-unquote green. And that may be through what they're doing in terms of underwriting green bonds, what they're doing in terms of sustainable finance product development, and if they're, what they're doing in terms of offering consulting or advisory services to be able to take advantage of these opportunities um, as, the, as the space matures. And from, from our analysis um, of the snapshot that we did, sort of banks in Europe, Singapore and Canada, they appear to be the most active currently in capturing green finance opportunities, while banks in... I guess, like Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Kuwait, um, Russia, Poland, they currently lag um, the sample of banks that we looked at in their involvement in green finance. But I wonder, I guess there's an, also another important point to mention there is that there can be significant differences amongst banks within a country. 
So if you take the US, for example, we have a large, um, I don't, let's say, a large range in terms of scoring for sort of environmental finance opportunities. And the reason for that is that the, the lowest scoring banks, they tend to be the regional banks in the US and they're not yet active um, in terms of um, positioning themselves for those sustainable finance opportunities. And I think just more globally, uh, one of the takeaways was also that many banks have not yet sort of entered that space. So there's some opportunity there. Okay, to bring everything back to how you should look at a bank's carbon reduction plan, there seems to be two prevailing themes here. The first is one that's already tried and true and one we talked a lot about last week, and it's not only a commitment to cut scope three emissions, but for banks, a disclosure of what their scope three emissions are, especially for category 15. Another interesting facet of these plans, though, is the financing of the green economy through bank loans. If the banking industry decides to do that while moving away from financing the more pollutive industries they currently provide loans to, those industries we talked about last week, the utilities, the materials, the energy sector and companies, then maybe those industries will see a massive secondhand shift in how they can operate. And that might change how our economy can operate. Let's keep with that thought because the next and last industry on this climate palooza is the tech industry. It's similar to banks in that the tech industry isn't a large direct emitter. Technology companies offer services or software products that sit on hardware, and their scope one and two operational emissions aren't all that high. They've got buildings, they've got data centers, they've got packaging issues for companies like Amazon, but that's it when it comes to operational emissions. But like banks, technology companies have large scope three emissions due to the influence and exposure that they have to pollutive industries. And so we think you should know how to assess their carbon reduction plans. And to help me with this, I called up my colleague, Andrew Young, who covers the tech industry for us. And he wanted to focus on two companies. Well, really, one massive tech company and then a contrasting point with another massive tech company. And his star of the show, as it almost has to be with tech, was Google. And he first took me through Google's carbon reduction plan as a proxy for the industry as a whole. Yeah, maybe, maybe representative of the sector, even you know, even broader, uh, you know, uh, sections of the economy, because the, the 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 target, the Google's climate target, is ambitious. We'll say that it's ambitious, but it's also limited in scope. So it's it's both of these things at the same time. Google's pledge only includes scope one and two. So it's direct emissions coming from its operations, its data centers, its offices. And so that means it leaves out, according to its own calculations, 93% of its footprint. Okay, 93%, that's a lot of percents. But uh, still, the word ambitious was used in there, I think. So before we get to the contrasting company, I wondered what that ambitious part of Google plan was. And Andrew was nice enough to oblige. They want to uh, run on renewable energy all of the time. So uh, up until now, you know, they've been uh, a responsible company in that they've offset their emissions, um, their operational emissions through purchasing offsets. Now they want to run on renewable energy all of the time, which means also where they have locations, data centers or offices, that do not have access to renewable energy, they will have to install that capacity and run uh, that capacity. That's an important point when considering climate plans because if Google is to do that, 
it would mean that would be setting up renewable energy systems in communities that might not otherwise have the funds to do so. And maybe, hypothetically, that excess energy could be sold off to a local utility to make the entire system greener in that area. You know, companies helping companies. Still, the lack of Scope 3 emissions being included in the plan should be noted. And what would a Scope 3 included plan look like for Google? Well, I'm glad you asked. It would need to address the, the emissions in its supply chain. Um, so this is things, what we call capital goods. So this is, you know, all the equipment that goes into their data centers, all the equipment that are, are used um, uh, in its offices, uh, and the footprint derived, derived from those, um, that, the, that equipment. So that means Google would have to work with those suppliers as well to, uh, to mitigate uh, that footprint. So, you know, Google buys thousands, millions of, of semiconductor, of chips, uh, to put in uh, computers and in its data centers, um, it would have to work with those chip manufacturers to reduce their footprint. And so therefore encouraging a broader sect, uh, sector of the economy to reduce their emissions in line with the company's own ambitious operational emissions. Now, the reason Google is getting a bit of a side eye in this episode is because there are a number of tech companies that have included Scope 3 emissions in their carbon reduction plans. Salesforce, Microsoft, VMware, Accenture, the big consulting firm, have all committed to net zero emissions across all scopes. But you might be thinking, well, Google is bigger than all those companies. Maybe it's just too complex. Well, its main competitor, Amazon also included scope three in its emissions reduction plan. So Amazon technology company, but also a company with a large physical footprint in terms of its, the logistics of its e-commerce business. Um, this company has committed to net zero by 2040 and set intermediary targets on the way there. So for the operations like to use renewable energies by 2025 across all of the operations. Also to have 100,000 uh, electric vehicles on the roads by 2030. Um, also um, to reduce the emissions coming from uh, their shipments. So reduce the emissions uh, from their planes, reduce the emissions from the ships uh, going around the world, um, etc. And then also upgrading their buildings, upgrading their data centers um, for to use the most energy efficient technologies. And that means... Um, working with uh, suppliers as well. So, okay, why is Scope 3 inclusion so important here? Well, as we've spoken about on this episode, on last week's episode, to focus on Scope 3 is also to focus on the economy as a whole. It's a focus on how a company wields their power, both over their suppliers and oddly, especially for technology companies, their customers. So if a company says, we're going to cut our emissions across all scopes, it means they will have to work with both their suppliers and their customers to lower their collective carbon footprint. Kind of like how I said hypothetically, Google might be introducing renewable energy systems with its scope one and scope two plants. There's these offset effects. That might be setting up recycling programs for their hardware as Apple has done, or trying to introduce more electric vehicles in their delivery fleets as Amazon is trying to do and Andrew noted. It also means those massive hardware companies that make semiconductors and casings for cell phones and computers will also have to green their systems. Now, what were the point of these two episodes, these climate paloozas, as we put on? Well, more carbon reduction plans are going to be coming out and different factors are going to be affecting those plans. And we hope with these two episodes, you got a bit of an understanding of how to think through those 
desires by companies to lower their collective carbon footprint. Because as the world moves to shift away from pollutive industries, you will have to assess whether or not the plans we are putting forward are actually useful or just smoke screens. And that's it for the week. I want to thank Nigel and Andrew for joining me to discuss the news with an ESG twist. I wanted to thank you so much, especially if you listened to part one and part two of this Climate Palooza episode. I hope it was at least enjoyable to listen to, if not useful. Don't forget to rate and review us as always. That helps us get a little bit higher in the podcast lists. And subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, that's also helpful. Thanks again, and talk to you next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.